Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's send it off to your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Today, we are with Melissa Handy, the technology coordinator at Le Jardin Academy, which is a medium-sized independent school on the windward side of Oahu. And she's also past president of the Hawaii Society for Technology and Education, among many other things. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Melissa, we have a, a question format for these episodes. We call it 10 Questions For. So today is going to be 10 questions for Melissa Handy, and we're going to launch into question number one. Okay. So here's, here's the first question. Um, you grew up in Pennsylvania, and you say your love for education sprouted young. So what was it like to have your father as your fifth grade teacher? Um, and I'm going to cheat here and ask a sort of unnumbered follow-up question that you can fold into it. What was it like to take a gap year after high school? And what do you say to parents who are dealing with kids who want to do the same thing? So the first okay. question is about your dad as your fifth grade yeah. teacher. Well, actually, both my parents were teachers, and you may... Um, experience going and having your parent as a teacher in a classroom, but when your parents are teachers, they're teaching you all the time. <laughs> so right. uh, we had dinner table discussions, you know, lessons on the lanai. We called it a porch. Yeah. Um, but it was at the same time incredibly cool and terribly embarrassing. And, <laughs> you know, my dad was always uh, out on the playground at recess playing kickball, and I was like, oh, gosh, dad. <laughs> but it was great. It was really so much fun. And my dad was one of those, um, I mean, he's retired now. He, and probably is still a teacher all the time, but he was the kind of teacher that kids just gravitated toward because he made learning so much fun. He, you know, there just were no walls and all the time he was thinking about how could we get kids excited? You know, what, how could we make this um, lesson even more interesting? So he was like all provocation, and then, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then the learning followed. What do you remember? Do you remember anything specific about some of the lessons that he did that sort of demonstrated that sense of no walls? Okay, this is a, a very this long is just time a ago. small. This is novel. Yeah, this is a small one, but I will never forget. Um, my dad was just great at relating to kids. I will never forget uh, in fractions, numerator and denominator because there was this kid in my class, and I was, was fifth, fifth grade. His name was Freddie Nominaker. And he was this kind of kid who was always, you know, kind of causing the ruckus. And he would uh, go around, and any, anytime somebody said something, he'd be like, no, duh, no, duh, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, I think he kind of like r razzled people a little bit. And so my dad taught numerators and denominators, no, duh. <laughs> <laughs> And so it just, he just connected things to, mm -hmm. you know, whatever uh, was the culture of that, of that student body. So, you know, at, in, when I was in fifth grade, we loved um, Ghostbusters because that's the year it came out. Mm -hmm. And there was just like this, you know, everything in the classroom was somehow related to um, mm. the things we were obsessed with as children. So mm. nothing, you know, there was a lot of um, just uh, game game playing. I don't know if it was gamification, but just 
jovialness to what we were learning. So. A strong sense of play. Yeah, just a mm. strong sense of play. I, and I think, you know, my, his first year as a teacher, he taught kindergarten in, in the public school. Both my parents are public school teachers. And I think he just, just was always a kindergarten teacher. Mm. So fast forward to graduating from high school and then you took a gap year. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I had a strong inclination to go to an art college. Um, but I just wasn't ready at the end of high school. And I was, um, you, you know, you wouldn't have considered me a very strong high school student. Um, I was smart, I was capable, but I had no buy-in. I was not motivated as a student. And so I worked a job and I was more interested in, you know, just uh, being away from school as opposed to being there and making the best of it. So I knew that I wasn't ready for college. Hmm. And so I worked for a year. I actually worked, worked third shift in a diner. And it was really interesting. I met a lot of incredible characters. Mm. Um, and then finally I decided it was time and I was 19 and put a port, I had built this portfolio of paintings and photographs and you know drawings and everything over the course of high school and outside of school mostly. Um, and then I went to art college. Mm. And so it, it was very natural. My parents were, they never pushed college. They weren't, you know, they, they never pushed education. They just always made it something that we loved to do. Mm. And so I'm a parent here in 2020. Yeah. And I know you and Me in too. your capacity at the school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my son is thinking about taking a gap year and I'm pretty freaked out. Yeah. So I come to you and I say, what do you think? And what do you say? Um, I actually have this conversation all the time with parents. Um, I run a parent support group at my school, so I talk with high school parents all the time. Wow. And I talk about my own daughters in, uh, sometimes I say she's in her second year of a five-year gap program, <laughs> um, but mostly because she hasn't figured out, you know, what she's doing in life yet, and she's still... Um, I think she's smart because she's making decisions that are based in what she knows about herself. And I trust my child. And I just ask parents, just trust your child because mm. once they light up that passion and hopefully schools get better at making sure kids know what their passion is before they leave. Right. Um, but once they figure out that passion, like you can't stop them if you try. So I think yeah. you just have to love and support your kid and know that, you know, think back to your own um, 18 year old, 19 year old self and Think about how different your perspective is and, and you know, how you've become a, mm. a, a totally different person and give them time and space. Cool. We don't have to rush them. Right. Okay, so right. perfect segue to question number two, Melissa. Mm -hmm. um, David Epstein has written a book titled Range uh, that argues generalists triumph in a specialized world. He also argues that, quote unquote, wicked environments are better teachers than, quote unquote, comfortable environments. And he cites evidence that, for example, chemists, when confronted with a problem to solve outside of chemistry, tend to fail. So if the evidence supports him, surely high schools, colleges, and universities are the chief culprit in making the last 150 years the age of narrow specialization in education. So my question is, you're, you're a specialist in the area of IT and ed tech. But you're also so much more than that. In many ways, you are a generalist, and I know that because I know you. Um, so how do you feel about all this? And where is the world headed, and what kinds of people will be most likely to succeed? Hmm. Um, the short answer is artists. <laughs> no, I think that I guess I would consider myself a generalist. I, I believe that perhaps the the ability of the artist, you know, I was an artist before I was a technologist, um, or maybe I was both always at the same time, but um, when you have the kind of the operation of looking in tight and close at a problem, then you become somewhat of a specialist brain. But when you then step back and look at your painting and try to see how it's all fitting together and, and start making decisions about how you might need to tweak things or adjust your um, your work to make it more balanced, then you become a generalist mind. Mm. And I think maybe I've just always had that approach. So I don't think of myself as a technologist or I don't think of myself as, but 
you know, an, an artist or just a parent or um, somebody who used to waitress. Um, but I think about all the different skills that we pull together over time, always being in that toolbox toolbox at the ready. And I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't think that my, my mom always used to say everything in balance, everything in balance. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's great to be a specialist, but I think we also need to always ask um, our students to look at things outside of those subject containers. Mm-hmm. And we need to encourage our professional colleagues to do the same. Should we be worried that we have so relentlessly channeled kids towards college and towards specialization for a very long time and now we're running into um, an extremely complex world which might be difficult for them to navigate? I think that we should be worried that we have a tendency to view ourselves as puppet masters. Hmm. And I think that really I mean, I was a rebel kid. I was a kid that didn't always follow the rules. So I have a lot of um, confidence that there are plenty of kids in this generation who are not going to listen to what we're pushing them to do anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And there will always be some kids that want to follow along with a guidebook. Um, But I'm I'm not too worried. I think that, you know, my daughter is a good example of this. She doesn't want to go to college because she thinks it's too much money until she figures out what her interest is going to be, and then she'll chase that, that passion. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of other kids in this, in this world who are going to do the same thing, or they might, they're going, to, they're going to take college and they're going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I double majored in glass blowing and ceramics, and then I went and got a computer science degree. And I was like six credits short <laughs> of a bachelor in fine arts. And then I switched over to computer science and like nothing transferred over. Um, but I think that there are plenty of just rebel kids who are learners. If we teach them to be learners, then all that other stuff that we want to kind of put in place and kind of map out a path for them isn't going to matter anyway. Mm. What are the connections between glass blowing and, and IT? Um, well, I was a terrible glass blower. Just because I did it in college for four years doesn't mean I have any skill set there. Um, it's really difficult and it's something, um, it's, it's really is an art form and a science and it's, you have to be passionate about it because it's not something like you break, especially when you're starting, you break most of the things you create because they crash and shatter. Um, or you melt them in the wrong way, or, you know, it's just, it's a really difficult skill. Um, I think that what the common theme is, is you, you can't prepare so much in advance. You prepare when you're in it. Mm. Um, in, so I'm an IT leader, which means I don't, I, I'm like really, really broad, but no depth, right? I don't, um, I, I don't set up my own servers. I'm not in there, you know, uh, hooking up all of the network equipment. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm in charge of anything that plugs in is what I say, but I, you know, I'm in charge of printers and telephony and all the different parts. Um, but I'm more of an orchestrator of the big picture. Um, so that's my technology skill set. But also, um, glass blowers are creative and they can. Uh, think about things in a different way, and they're uh, willing to try things because glass is cheap, and if it breaks, you just remelt it, and then you try again. <laughs> right, right. Um, it's, you know, it's it's failure is an acceptable um, and expected part of the process. Mm. And it's, it sounds super interesting that, like in glass blowing, that you have to be solving problems literally in real time. Like in seconds, you have to figure out what's going on and correct for it yeah. and all that. Talk about blood pressure. Yes, right, right, <laughs> it's right. very stressful. So, so again, perfect segue to question number three. Sure. Um, you were the education technology director at Island Pacific Academy, which is also a medium-sized private school on the west side of Oahu. Mm-hmm. And now you're the education technology director at Desjardins Academy, which is a similar-sized private school on Oahu's Windward side. So besides running around with your hair on fire, <laughs> um, putting out tech fires, what is the role of an education technology director? And what do you love most about your work? And what's an example of fabulous education technology? Hmm. So I think that education technology is fabulous when it's organic 
and when it's not contrived. Um, I think that the, the role of a school technology leader, uh, I always say, um, you know, to my team, I always say our job is to make sure that the technology doesn't get in the way of the learning, mm-hmm. right? We don't want the technology to be something that people notice. It, it should be the sort of background um, or ambiance to the experience um, and isn't important if it's not adding you know, a technology augments things. It can make a really bad thing terrible, and it could make a really amazing thing even better. Um, so we want to put it, we want it to be available. We want teachers to be able to reach for it like they'd reach for a glass of water. You know, we don't want technology to be this, like, ridiculous burden that teachers feel like it's being assigned to them or they're, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a weight on their shoulders. Um, they're teaching and, you know, the profession of being, um, a heart and a mind and an ear to students has nothing to do with the, whatever tools you're using. So you can have incredible teachers who don't use what we would consider modern technology. Mm. Um, and you can have teachers that all they do is the technology and they don't connect with kids and they, you know. Mm. So personally, what I like to do with my job is to just have that kind of not be something that people notice. Mm. And then when they interact with me, it's more, the focus is more on um, expanding the way we think about teaching and learning hmm. and oh and you need help plugging this in yeah I can help you with that right? right but most of my interaction with teachers is around you know what are the problems you're trying to solve or you know who do you want to get kids together or collaborate or you know how can we um, set up uh, our learning um, atmosphere so that it's more about student agency and students making decisions and students being hmm. in charge and you hmm. know let the students figure out what tech to bring in you and I have talked about in the past the idea that for a little while, and I think this was sort of around the time that iPads showed yeah. up, that we sort of all went collectively insane um, and began <laughs> focusing strictly on the devices as mm-hmm. if somehow they were the end to everything, the be-all mm-hmm. and the end-all. And then we kind of dialed back and regained our senses and put technology back in the toolbox or it became the glass of water again. Mm -hmm. And now we're refocused on pedagogy Mm -hmm. and thinking through what really great teaching and learning is. Do you feel like that's the case? Yeah, I think it's cyclical, right? I'm sure like the the first time that somebody had a a slate and a piece of chalk, it was like, oh my goodness. Everybody (laughs) has to have slate. Yes. Um, you know, we're, I'm sure we, I always tell kids like a pencil's technology. <laughs> right. Um, I, you know, I think there's always going to be this situation where when something is new to a teacher, that it's either a hurdle or something that's exciting. And they're going to try to figure out, I mean, teachers have one driving force. They want to they serve their students yeah. in the best way possible. And, you know, I don't care who you are as a teacher. You go into teaching because you really care about kids and you really want to help them. Mm. So it looks different based on the different ways our hearts and minds and our experience knows how to deliver that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's going to happen again. It happened with smart boards. Yeah, you know, it really <laughs> did. Yeah. Right now it's happening with all this AR, VR stuff. And there's just, yeah. you know, I think that I think that there's a lot of, uh, value to having that kind of excitement, um, but we just can't lose track of the fact that you don't need those things for high quality learning. Right. Awesome. So questions number four and five are just sort of some technical things that I wanted to kind of uh, get clear with you. So question number four is you're the past president of the Hawaii Society for Technology and Education, um, otherwise known as HISTI. And HISTI is an affiliate of ISTE, Mm -hmm. which is the International Society for Technology and Education, and and connects, HISTE connects with more than 70 other affiliates to share best practices and increase service to members and strengthen uh, impact in the local education community. So my question is, why did its founders feel the need to create it? And what has its role been over the years to bring together public, private, and charter schools? Mm. So... The when I I was actually there when it first came together, um, and it the Hawaii um, affiliate started because a group of people went to the international uh, conference, um, which is all over the U.S. Every year it moves it like ping pongs East Coast West Coast, mm-hmm. and um, I think 
it was Mark Hines at Mid-Pacific Institute, or it might have been Phil Bossert, but somebody said, why don't we have an affiliate? You know, in Hawaii, we have so much great stuff happening, and, um, you know, this really is, as far as I understand, the only state that does the public-private charter relationships so, so well. It's not, you know, something that we just say that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, we I really think do that it. we really do care. And HISTI itself, um, from the from the get-go, was made up of both private and, and public teachers. And then from you know, it's from its um, first year on, they've always, the board has always said, we want to try to make sure there's a balance on the board of folks from these different, you know, sides of education in Hawaii. So it started because it was a bunch of people who thought there's a lot of magic happening in that ISTE community and that we could, um, we could use it as a platform to really push um, opportunities for teachers here and leaders, uh, you know, school leaders to learn more about how technology can be used. But it really isn't a tech-only thing. Everything's uh, focused on um, those sort of best practices. It's such a buzzword. But, you know, what really helps kids to learn and get jazzed about um, learning and and school? And, you know, here's some tools that that teachers need help learning to use. So across all these sectors, Mm -hmm. public, private, and charter, these HISTI members are working with each other and talking to each other so as a professional learning community. And yeah. that, that has extended that idea that we're all in it together for the kids. Yeah. And um, HISTI is a sponsoring uh, partner for the annual Schools of the Future conference, right. which started out of this uh, Schools of the Future um, grant cohort. And um, I was a, a member of at Island Pacific Academy. We were a grantee school, and Le Jardin also had been a grantee school. Um, and it, it really is also a conference that's a partnership between the, the public DOE mm-hmm. and the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, and charters have really come in a lot more in the past couple of years. And, you know, the conference is 1,700-plus people, and it's really balanced between that pro- public-private um, demographic. So right. Yeah. Okay. So question number five. Um, Le Jardin is an, an international baccalaureate school. Yes. As some, uh, as are some other public and private schools here in Hawaii. I'm willing to bet that IB is not a well understood idea, even in education <laughs> circles. So not. Melissa, what is international baccalaureate? What do you love about it? What do you not love about it? And in what ways does IB engage young minds, if that's what it intends to do? Sure. So um, Island Pacific Academy and Lizardan Academy, so both the schools I've been at on island here are IB schools. And I'm a teacher of the the 11 and 12th year program, which is um, the diploma program. But... Um, our schools start with the, um, our preschoolers actually start with uh, what's called the primary years program. And then they move into what's called the middle years program. And then this sort of final two years is the diploma program. And a lot of times people think of the diploma program as very similar to AP, right? Colleges love it. It's super rigorous. It's a low bar. Anybody can really do it and succeed, but it's a high ceiling. Like you can really take this work far. Um, what is, I don't have a lot of things that I don't love about it. Uh, one of the things I'm most passionate about is that across the entire program, it really is a framework. It's not an off-the-shelf curriculum. It's a framework that asks teachers and, and school leaders to find ways for kids to take action from their learning, um, for kids to have agency and to remove the silos. In the diploma program, 11th and 12th, it's very disciplinary. But um, in the primary years program, in the elementary program, sometimes going up to sixth grade at our school fifth, um, it's focused on transdisciplinary skills mm-hmm. uh, or t- transdisciplinary um, thinking. So you have this sort of big overarching, you know, essential question type um, approach. And everything that the kid is doing is around that big unit of, of inquiry. Right. So, for instance, um, there's, there's a... a a unit in second grade called um, Dirt Ate My Lunch. It's just a unit that the teachers came up with, right? 
And so they are, they have, they come up with all these questions. There's a provocation, you know, the teachers arrange for some kind of interesting thing to occur at the start of the unit. And then, um, you know, we have this teacher, uh, Sam, I observed him the other day. He, go he goes through this entire process with kids. Tell me all of the questions that you have after you saw that provocation or af after you participated in this, right? And so the kids come up with all these questions. And so there's not this unit that the mm. teacher wrote that they're like, okay, now on Tuesday, we're going to be doing this activity, right? The, the kids come up with all of these different things and one class might kind of go in this direction and they want to learn about volcanoes and another class wants to learn more about gardening. And, you know, what are, uh, there was a, a group that wanted to focus on worms. They were fascinated by earthworms, right? So they kind of go in these different directions and then um, the, um, subjects are brought in, right? We're, we're looking at uh, science, we're taught, we're writing, we're reading about stories that are related, you know, this group's reading about volcanoes and that group's focused on earthworms or whatever. And they're getting to the questions that the teacher wants them to get to, but they're answering all their own questions too. So there's not this like, oh, okay, that's a great question, Jimmy, but we're gonna put that in the parking lot right now because the teacher needs yeah. us to talk about this topic. Right. Um, and then when you move to the middle school, it's um, interdisciplinary. So you take like, well, we have um, a design class and a science class. And so those teachers are working together and they're making solar boats and, you know, kids are creating the solar boats, but they're soldering in the um, science class and they're learning all about, you know, the, the electronics side of things. And what I, what I really appreciate is that the kids can kind of go along their own inquiry path, and it's not that it's not that super teacher heavy driven inquiry, right? right? That's my favorite part about the IP program. Um, what you know, in I teach computer science, and I have eleventh and twelfth grade students, and in that program, in the diploma program, it's very disciplinary but you can have so much flexibility. The kids have to develop their own software for a real client. Um, in the 10th grade year, they have to do this thing called the personal project. So they're finding a real problem in the world and they're solving it. And in the fifth grade year, they have exhibition. It's like this culminating everything I've learned about taking action from learning. And I'm, you know, I'm gonna work on a team and I'm gonna put mm -hmm. something together, so. Yeah. I could talk about it for hours, Josh. <laughs> right. I love the yes. IB program. Everyone should learn more about it. It's like the hidden secret. It's like this this gem that people just don't know. I think you've opened it up for a lot of people <laughs> here. Hey, everybody, stay with us. After a short break, we will come back with more questions for Melissa Handy. Our specialty is providing cultural-based programming to learn technology and computer science. We are always looking for teachers, volunteers, and schools to partner with. But our programs aren't only for Keiki. Heard of the Purple Prize? We're accepting applications now for Kamaka Inana, a design and venture ideation program for adults interested in creating solutions that positively impact the Pai Aina. It's about shaping the way Hawaii designs for the future. Visit us at purplemaia or purpleprize.com for more info. Also, how major is this podcast? Keep up the good work, guys. This is Toy and Amber from Entre Ed Talk. We are so excited to uplift this cool new podcast coming to you from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What school could be in Hawaii? As always, we're super excited to support innovation and education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of these incredible educators on our own podcast, Entre Ed Talk. If you're looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators from across the world, join us as we share their journey and insight. Be sure to check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Entre Ed Talk and like, subscribe, and drop us a review today. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii, a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Rapoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of edtech. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page, and scroll down to edtech. We'll see you there.
Hey everybody, we are back with Melissa Handy, the Director of Education Technology at Leisureden Academy. So here's question number six. Melissa, right now I'm listening to Joe Bowler's book, Limitless Mind, mm. and she consistently references the guru of neuroplasticity and the growth mindset, Carol Dweck. Bowler also talks about becoming, quote unquote, unlocked as an educator. You have described yourself as a person who runs behind your students' bikes, more of a coach and facilitator than a dispenser of knowledge. So my question is, given all that I know about you, um, you really are 100% unlocked as an educator. But what does that mean? And how does a typical educator develop a growth mindset and become unlocked? Hmm. Um, I don't, you know, I think actually my parents were both teachers. And for my entire childhood, I always said, I'll never be a teacher. <laughs> I always thought I would be a famous artist. And then, you know, years later, I got much more interested in um, software development. And and when I first moved out here from Pennsylvania, I um, taught math. And so I hadn't had this um, training in teaching math. Um, and my models were, you know, my father and I had some other like really incredible teachers. And so I just went with the the way that worked for me. You know, the teachers that kind of modeled those sort of outside of the box, different approaches were the ones that connected with me. And so I always wanted to try to, that was my focus, like how can I make a connection? Um, and also I never liked the idea of, of sort of mass moving kids through things. So early on in, in my teaching, I threw away the idea of I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach something and then the kids are all gonna listen and then we're gonna move at the same pace through stuff. Um, so I think I just was always unlocked as a teacher. You mm -hmm. know, maybe I, I just never had the, the mindset of wanting to do things in a traditional style. Um, but I teach like I coach and I coach like, like, um, like I'm on break. <laughs> I really do. I coach like, um, if I wait a little bit longer, you're going to solve it yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I, I'm always like, I'm, I'm going to help you and I want to be there for you. And, you know, have you tried this or have you looked over here? Mm -hmm. um, but I don't like solving problems for kids that I think that they can solve on their own. Mm -hmm. And I also worked in a software development field and I worked in, you know, I kind of came up through IT. And so every day, you have a whole slew of new problems that you didn't train for, right? Microsoft's changed everything about their operating system or, you know, there's a whole new um, virus out there that's attacking the world and you've got to figure out how to protect your network. So mm. I expect them to have that same skill set that I have when I'm troubleshooting something. So I, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I teach like I'm on break. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds like there are two things um, that I've picked up out of this answer. That um, one of them is the idea that um, you're you're not moving through things with kids, and so you have to honor the idea that they have questions, mm -hmm. and so therefore you really have to have patience, mm -hmm. and that patience allows you to let them to explore something that you really do want to jump in into. Right? Mm -hmm. You just want to answer the question for them. Um, so patience is part of it. And maybe the other part of it is just that a broad array of experiences in your life allows you to bring those experiences into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And that helps you to become unlocked as well. Mm -hmm. That's something that you've had over your life is a broad array of experiences. Yeah, I've, I've definitely had a lot of different experiences. And, you know, for me, it was not about it's not really that much about patience. Um, in the beginning, when I was a first year teacher, I was scared of everybody looking in and seeing me doing things differently. Hmm. And, um, but I was also like, well, if I get fired, <laughs> I just do something different. So um, to me, it's more, my focus, my energy is always um, aimed at the consultation with students. Hmm. So I used to teach, when I first came out here, I taught math. 
And um, I did a lot of assessments, lots of formative assessments. Where are you? What do you need? Like, you know, uh, oh, look, you two kids are really good at this. Can you help that other kid? Or, um, oh, my gosh, you three of you need to work on this together. And I always thought I never wanted anybody to talk at me for more than 15 minutes. So I'll never talk at kids for more than 15 minutes. We can sit. I'll show you something real quick, give you some resources, go. And um, so my teaching style is more uh, about having lots of one-on-one interactions. So when I when I started as a math teacher, I had lots of resources. I feel like math teachers could have just like drawers and drawers of, oh, you need this kind of problem? I got that kind of problem for you. And, um, you know, practice these and don't do more homework than you need to. Do the problems that you feel like you really need to do. Right. And then I would have just five-minute check-ins or, you know, longer check-ins uh, in, in the cycle of the week um, with kids who needed a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the personal interaction with mm-hmm. students is, is really easy if you can get your mind around the fact that you're not teaching in a traditional manner. Right, right. So it's so, not patience, it's a little courage. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. a tiny bit of courage. So that's a perfect segue to question number seven. So it's time to talk about the maker movement, which I oh, know this is something you yeah. you love to talk about, and also about robotics. So um, you quote John Spencer in episode 96 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast, um, who states, and I quote, students need to be able to engage in iterative thinking, creative thinking, critical thinking. They need to know how to pivot, how to change, how to revise, how to persevere. They need to solve complex problems. They need to think divergently. All of these are involved in the maker mindset. So to you, Melissa, what is the maker mindset? Like what awesome examples do you have from your classrooms and courses that give us uh, that reach for Spencer's high ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll, I'll ask you a follow-up question, a sort of cheater follow-up question to that okay. afterwards. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, I, I talk about the maker movement a lot because I'm in tech and I coach robotics and I teach computer science. And so people always ask me about the maker movement. But I don't think of, um, you know, the, the way I'm responding is just good teaching in every kind of course. I think that we often um, ask kids to try something and learn it. And then whatever their result is, well, that's great. That's where you are. Now we're moving on to the next concept. And I think that all of learning and all of doing should be about this iterative process, right? Um, I love the idea. Of, maybe this is... Um, pools from my uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts experience, but I think that we should always be making quality work. Mm. And I don't like when we have situations where a kid doesn't turn something in on time and then we're like, well, you missed that learning opportunity, right? Like the class is moving on to the next thing. I think we should ask kids to do it and then do it again and see if you can make it better and see if you can understand it deeper. And um, so you know, that's kind of my core belief about how we should um, interact in schools. And then if you want to apply things that are, you know, focused around uh, industrial arts type work or, you know, getting kids to build physical products or, um, you know, creating apps and things like that, then then we can talk about maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, it's really, it's, you know, a lot of times when people think about maker, they're like maker spaces and it's all about the building and you got this cool tool set and, but that's not it at all. It really just ditch the maker and just use the word mindset and talk about how we can get kids thinking about, um, being impactful and trying to be better at being impactful and then having a higher quality impact or making something better. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to note to our radio audience that um, you co-wrote an article that was oh. just published, mm-hmm. right, um, in Honolulu Magazine and, if, and about Maker yes. uh, and the Maker mindset. And if they want to read that, they can go to Honolulu Magazine's website. Um, so here's the, here's the cheater question. I'm the HR manager for a large hospital, and we're hiring someone who will manage the outpatient surgery clinic. Um, how do I know I am talking to a person with a Maker mindset? Mm. Well, I think that you have to, like the first thing you need to do is dig into um, their perception of failure, 
right? Mm. And I, when I was uh, first out of college with a bachelor in computer science, I, I went out and tried to get jobs as a programmer and like work on teams developing software. And this was right around the time when, you know, Microsoft was having all this um, uh, press around their hiring process. And, yeah. you know, one of the questions they asked me was just a ridiculous question about like light bulbs in a room. And if you leave the room, how do you know which light bulbs are, <laughs> you know, if you're rolling, a, if, you know, how do you get a square, um, uh, you know, into a round hole or, you know, they just try to get you to think creatively and talk creatively. But I think um, if you can, if you can see if someone is uncomfortable with failure, mm -hmm. then you can quickly see if they're going to be a maker mindset person. Um, in our technology office, we always we always kind of take like secret bets on the side of whether or not a teacher is really going to fit in in our community or not. And often it's just because one of the first things teachers do at a school is they go get their computer and they sign into their accounts and they understand how to use the technology at the school. And you can tell right away if someone can be comfortable with that kind of ambiguous, like, oh, this isn't working and I don't know how to do it. Um, and if they're just comfortable and they just try to figure things out, then you know that they have the maker mindset. Mm -hmm. But if they come in and they're, you know, just everything is giving them extra stress, and you're like, oh, these folks are not comfortable with mm. failure. Wow, that's super interesting. So question number eight is maker-centered learning is intentionally interwoven through Les Jardins PK through five classrooms uh, or curriculums. Um, and then grades uh, six through 10 design course, which is a core class having equal emphasis to math and language, which I found quite striking. Um, so as I move around campus at Les Jardins, what am I seeing in student behavior that is evidence of the goals of this kind of learning? Yeah. Um, so in, in every international baccalaureate school, they have a core class called MYP design, middle years program design from six through 10. Um, so design is just a core part of what that program says is important. Um, and it is just design thinking, right? It's, it can be applied to anything. You can have a cooking class that's design, or you could have, you know, we've got like more of a, um, a media class and we've got a computer science class and there's, you know, that kind of traditional industrial arts type product class. Um, so you're seeing a lot of that in the secondary program. When you walk around our elementary program, you just see kids, you know, it's, they're not making things like the traditional diorama. How many dioramas did you make as a child? Oh boy, Josh? way too many. I made so many of those, but yes. um, they're coming up with solutions. In third grade, we have a, a unit that, I don't remember the name of the unit because I'm a high school teacher, um, but they focus on water and water scarcity and they're they're looking at the science of it, they're reading books, they're, and they um, design solutions. And so some kids are like making water, new water filter solutions or some kids are making different kinds of products that might, or PSAs where they're trying to get people to think differently um, about, you know, uh, water and wasting water and um, there's a sign on the <clears throat> one of the bathroom doors that the third graders use, and it says rules for the bathroom. And my my favorite part about it is, of course, it's got all the standard rules: no wasting water, right? Mm -hmm. Clean up after yourself. Kids are taking action from their learning, but they take it to the next level, right? So one of the rules is be honest in the bathroom, <laughs> <laughs> right? They add their own kind of spin to it, but they're they're yeah. taking that learning and they're, they're committing action to make a change. Mm. Um, and so that's what you see across the, the elementary program. That's awesome. Okay, so question number nine, yeah. Melissa. Um, I have it on good authority that you are partnering with an innovative Hawaii public elementary school principal, Derek <laughs> Minakami, on a series of projects involving problem solving, design thinking, and the maker mindset. Mm. And by the way, for our audience, Derek was actually one of our public school teachers of the year and mm. actually went on uh, to become a final four finalist for national teacher of the year. Um, so please share with our radio audience, what are you and Derek cooking up? <laughs> 
Well, I'm I'm super lucky because Derek and I are on um, the WASC Commission, the Western Association of Schools and Colleges Commission together. So I get to see him three times a year when we meet on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And um, I also uh, have a robotics team and part of um, what's called FIRST Robotics is this real desire to kind of connect with the local community and to spread engineering, right? We just want mm -hmm. everyone to love robots and everyone to have that sort of engineering mindset. Mm -hmm. And so I was, was saying to Derek, like, Mike, actually, one of my students emailed him <laughs> and asked if we could bring our robot to his elementary school. Yeah. And I was just saying, like, hey, I think you got an email from one of my students. And, um, you know, we've been bringing our, our we, we do little STEM activities and we bring out um, our FTC robot and our bigger robot, FRC robot. And we just like let kids drive it or ask questions and we talk about them. And so I asked him, like, hey, could we do that? And he said, well, actually, I have this aquaponics set up um, that I need help assembling. I need I need to kind of get it off the ground. And so I said, well, you know, I don't have experience with that, but we have one at our school. And I know these kids are like problem solving type kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so and we love to just move a project forward. And, you know, with uh, with robotics, you don't know what the mission is going to be every year. You get it and then you have like a certain period of time where you just have to try to figure it out. So that's their spirit. Um, and then we all Derek and I also are planning to host a project tuning. We're going to get some teachers together and just do some teacher PD um, where they can uh, have a discussion about, you know, a problem of practice or um, try to make a project or a unit or a you know a lesson better. Mm. So yeah, I just love to work with Derek. Mm. And by project tuning, you're actually it's a reference, it's a metaphor and music mm -hmm. of where you're actually tuning together. Mm -hmm. You're getting yourselves to play the same note. Yeah, and that's a specific protocol that you go through. It's a specific protocol, and and really the magic of uh, project tuning is that you're bringing educators together. Um, because the best PD is when all of the, you know, uh, top heavy stuff gets out of the way and the teachers are just there together. Right. And so, um, you know, teachers trust each other because they know that they've been through similar experiences. And so we put teachers from all different um, divisions. So we don't just have like a whole bunch of high school math teachers together, but you have elementary teachers and, you know, a music teacher from middle school and you just bring them all into a discussion and somebody says, hey, I'm struggling with this problem. Mm. Um, you know, and uh, there's the protocol leads you through uh, a discussion in a way that makes it really safe. Um, but ultimately, teachers I've seen in, in the past, they leave those discussions. Every single person goes back with something that they're going to improve in their world because, um, mm -hmm. you know, a kindergarten teacher might be like, well, have you tried this? And the high school teachers, I never even thought about having a center for this kind of, right, you know, it's right. just it, it opens their minds and, and they can kind yeah. of uh, expand their thinking. You know, sometimes we use the phrase, uh, you know, it was like it happened yesterday uh -huh. too often. But for me, the first tuning protocol that I went through, literally, it was like I remember it like it happened yeah. yesterday. It was a transformative experience for me yeah. um, as an educator. So um, more on that later. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll have you back and we'll talk more oh, about good. protocols. So, Melissa, question number 10. Um, recently, you shared with me the story of your transgender daughter mm -hmm. and how proud you are of her courage as she worked through her gender identity transition. Yeah. So my question is, what is her story and what is your shared story? And what does this mean in the larger context of shifting cultures and generations and even maybe what school could be? Yeah. Um. Well, I have to say she's still working through that, right? Mm -hmm. She's um, someone who self-discovered, you know, she kind of had this feeling for a long time that something just wasn't right, but she self-discovered more in uh, junior year of high school that that's where, she, you know, where she was. And so I think that it's a learning journey for her and it's just as much a learning journey for me and for our school. Um, we have a number of students at our school who are transgender and are already in the in the you know process of transitioning or are um, working on just trying to figure out what that means in their world and how to like deal with the outside world. Um, you know, it's it's very it's very interesting, but I think that my I think that our school Le Jardin and I think that this state and this community. Um, is the perfect 
place to be if you're struggling with this kind of a major life um, challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, because people here are just so loving and protective and caring. And so her journey, I don't think has been that terrible. She's, she's very positive, she's happy. You know, she, um, she's the kind of person who has this kind of can-do attitude and she's more engaged in helping other people than she is in focusing on her own challenges. Um, but for me, it's been a real challenge. Uh, as a parent, you really, you know, my approach is to just try to be very open about it um, because the, the people in the community that you run into, you know, people in the family, people who are friends, it's just such a new thing for so many that um, folks are scared, like they don't know how to talk about it or they don't feel, uh, they don't want to say the wrong thing or they're uncomfortable because, you know, it, it's not fun to be misgendered. Mm -hmm. and, and But it's also like your brain is trained to say one thing and so it's hard to kind of like turn the corner on that. Um, and so I'm just trying to have the role of being someone that helps to say like, this is absolutely normal. And there are a lot of people who are going through it and um, not just the individuals, but their families and their friends and just helping people to understand that you make a misstep, that's fine. You don't have to, you know, don't treat people like they're this other, just love and embrace. And then, you know, if you accidentally say he and you meant she, then you just switch and you move on. Mm -hmm. um, but I want, I want the message really to be that um, these kids, these folks, these adults have been there forever and that finally we're lucky that we're sort of turning this corner and we're saying like, hey, come out and be yourself, like be who you are um, and we love and accept you. And I just want everyone to see me doing that and saying like, hey, this is easy to do actually. Melissa Handy, for many, many years you have inspired me to think more deeply about education. Thank you for being a guest on this show. And thank you for having me. Welcome back to season one, semester two of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We are so excited to share all of the new educators for this month. So coming up next week is a duo episode featuring Micah Hirokawa, head of school at Hakipu'u Learning Center, and Derek Minakami, the principal at Kaneohe Elementary School. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be, hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. Our next interviews will be recorded on Saturday, March 28th. You can join us in the studio through the magic of Facebook Live. Find us at the most likely to succeed in Hawaii Facebook page. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant and sound engineer is Ryan Ozawa. The editor for this episode was Marlo Nutrera under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at hawkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. Now, off to your next epic adventure. Class dismissed. <laughs>